I'm ready when you are. You can feel the country's on a knife edge. It's only, what, 30 minutes late starting? Let's do this! <laughs> it's a joke, obviously. You're in retreat. We're not rioting yet. I don't like that question. You're just saying shit and you don't even know what you're talking about. That spider game sounds way cooler than manta rays, doesn't it? And I was like, well, here's my two cents. You, you, you need a lot of stuff. That's how we should describe the podcast. If they ever went out and recruited one more person, then we'd have double the number of people listening. Well then. Let's start the show. Hello, Brad. I'm here. I'm here. Oh, welcome, welcome. Good to hear your voice from across the old uh, channel there. How you doing, my friend? Welcome to the show. Welcome, audience, to the show from wherever you're listening. Thank you very much, Brad. Yeah, it's uh, good to be here. Obviously, we're in the midst of chaos in the UK with the snap election coming our way. Yeah. Uh, in about a month's time, actually. And actually, there's some local elections happening tomorrow as well. So, yeah, the revolution could start very, very shortly, my friend. Seems you guys are in a perpetual state of uh, political tur- turmoil and uh, a perpetual election cycle. So We just, you know, we like democracy and we like to practice it regularly, you know, once a month at the moment, it seems. But uh, Yeah, and uh, you, you don't like, or you, you surely seem to enjoy... Uh, you know, clogging up everyone's news feeds with it. I'll say that. Wow, you're you're welcome. Is all I'll say. <laughs> well, um, I mean, I guess that's a that's as a good as uh, as good a place as any to start. Uh, you know, this mention of politics and the and the client the current political climate we're in, because we're gonna we're gonna delve a little bit into the mixing of science and politics because. Mm. I, for the first time ever in my life, participated in a, in a protest, a march, um, if you will, the, the March for Science that some of you might have heard about that took place on, all over the world, really, um, on Earth Day, so April 22nd. Um, being Canadian, we don't protest anything. Everybody just goes about their business quietly. You know, you might grumble about things at home and then just say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't actually, I'm not actually that upset. <laughs> <laughs> so I came here to Europe and, and just realized how much more politically engaged everybody was. So I just, you know, I got the bug and, and uh, Teresa and I just, you know, we we felt the urge to get out there in March and uh, and we did. Um, and it was good. Uh, I thought it was, I mean, obviously I went, so I supported it. I supported the idea of a March for Science. But the interesting thing um, leading up to it, I was seeing a lot of different articles and stuff Um on Twitter and whatnot, with you know a lot of support, obviously for the science march. I think it was really well attended, especially in places like Washington D.C. Um, however, there was certain members of the science community that were kind of saying, "Is this something that we really should be doing? Should we uh, be politicizing science?" That was the main sort of argument I heard against it. Was just that you're either you're going to 
further alienate people, um, the types of people that may have, you know, voted for candidates that are, you know, anti-science, that don't believe in climate change, this kind of thing. They're, they're further going to see this march as someone trying to tell them what to think and the elites and the college professors, you know, button into their business and stuff. And they had this idea as well that science just inherently shouldn't be political. There shouldn't be political biases. And therefore, engaging in this is, you know, not necessarily in the spirit of science. So interesting viewpoint well, I don't know where you come out on it but yeah and I know I know we touched on this um, when we were recording last I know you and I discussed it off air yeah I think it was an interesting one and actually it didn't I saw a lot of buzz for it on Twitter I didn't didn't see a lot of it in the mainstream media over over here which kind of surprised me um, but yeah I think ultimately you know, most science to be honest is funded through some sort of political system it's funded by the government and you know, as much as that is independent from policy or whatever, politics does does have a way in shaping it. Mm-hmm. You know, as certain parts of the U.S. you know government are seeing now with you know the changes potentially coming to the EPA and with the current you know administration believing that climate change is a bit of a hoax and stuff. So, yeah, I think I think it's treading a fine line, isn't it? I think that the day when the day comes that. You know, scientists are being dictated to by politicians. That's when you, you know, you're effectively being told to create another atom bomb, isn't it? Really, and I, you know that that I, I think we definitely need to make a stand against. But ultimately, you know, the funding needs to come from somewhere, and the you know the biggest bunch of funding, other than philanthropists like the Gates Foundations or whatever, is going to be from government. So, yeah, it's it's a yeah, it's a it's definitely an interesting debate, and I think one one it hasn't really ever brought to the surface until you know recent events in the U.S. I guess so. Yeah, I can't think of a time when it has. I know uh, you know three or four years ago in Canada, the previous Canadian government um, led by Stephen Harper, there was a lot of backlash against his government for cutting science and. Um, what they were saying at the time was that they were the government was muzzling scientists. So they basically um, government funded scientists were being um, heavily monitored as to what they were saying in the press and in the public. Uh, and they had to go through all sorts of channels in order to get clearance to speak to reporters and things like this. And, and there was a big backlash by the scientific community um, against that idea. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a recent phenomenon, I think, I mean, in terms of in my life or as long as I've been in, in the science world. But I think it's true that um, it's inherently political because of the funding. But also, I mean, you know, the thing that gets me and the thing that really made me want to participate is that science is such an integral part of society you know you think about things like you know climate change that affects everybody on the planet vaccinations you know all these issues that are popping up um, that are you know the science is clear on them and yet there's proponents of you know sections of people that are you know, seeding doubt um, and when those people that are doing that are just you know snake oil salesmen or whatever on the internet or something like that then it's it's one thing, but when it's actual people in government 
that are supporting yeah. that. That's when I think that it, it's it's a real issue. And 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 to me, and and when I was speaking with um, other people that attended the march, um, I brought this up and sort of just to kind of you know obviously it's a biased crowd because we're all at the march, so we're pro the march. Um, but they kind of said the same thing: is that it's it's just like it's we basically just have to show that our team is here. That there is a large number of people that want evidence-based policy making that um, support uh, the work of scientists that do all the good work, you know, coming up with vaccines and medicines and you know protecting the environment and all these great things that you know science gives us. It was it was more or less the idea was just a show of hands saying, hey, look at this is a huge mass of voting people that think that what is going on right now is a bunch of malarkey. If I can be so bold. Well, no, well, and that's the key point there, isn't it? You know, scientists are also voters. So, you know, it's no different than, you know, the miners striking because they're closing a coal pit or, you know, whatever industry is being affected next. Yeah, exactly. Ultimately, you know, the funding is coming from the government. Scientists potentially lose their job. But ultimately, the real loser from that is then the knock-on with the lack of innovation, lack of technology, the, you know, the things that could save lives or improve lives just aren't going to be there because somebody in government says, well, I don't believe in that anymore and I'm not going to throw any money at it. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's, I think it's, it's still a, a tricky one, like you say, because, you know, like you want to send this message to government. That's why you do these things, these marches and stuff, just saying, look at, we're here. We, we want evidence-based policy, we want all this, but I do understand the point that you don't want to alienate people. And I think that you have to be, you know, science communication is a very um, interesting field in itself because it's really difficult. You know, you have these proven concepts like the backfire effect, where if you try and tell somebody that their worldview is wrong rather than them listening to the evidence that you provide, which may be very good evidence. They double down and they close their mind and they don't want to hear it. You know, we see this all the time with the anti-vaxxing and climate change and stuff like that. So there is a danger. I think there is a risk in, you know, alienating some people that might just see this march again as like, oh, look at these university elites trying to tell me you know not to uh drive my car or you know whatever whatever it is and then some of the really sort of or callous is the wrong word but some of the viewpoints i've heard from scientists is just like well we're not going to reach those people anyway so why bother you know they're they're, we have to move forward without them And, and you know part of me says well yeah i mean i can't you don't want to let a small minority of people that are stuck in their ways that aren't willing to think critically and, you know, look at the evidence, hold back the progress of the whole world. But then again, to flip flop back to the other side, we do have to think about um, you, the, why do those people feel that way? Did they not have access to the same education that you might have had? You know, what is their upbringing in terms of? What is the, their local community? If their local community is tied to a coal mine that was just shut down and they're feeling the economic woes of that, you know? So there is this science communication needs to keep that in mind and not just get to this point where now we're on this team that's out there marching and saying all these other people are idiots and we're not even going to listen to them anymore, you know? 
Well, and uh, yeah, as you said, it's not maybe these people are all just Canadian. They just want, don't want to go out in March. So <laughs> it's too cold. You know, it's, it's, it's too cold. It's interesting in the short time that you've been on this continent that you know you've been brainwashed into the uh, protesting mentality as well. So oh man, I can't, I know, can't wait. Nature, nature or nurture? I can't wait nature for. Uh, can't wait for the next one now. You know, get all rowdy and actually, it was not very rowdy at all. <laughs> Believe it or not. Well, in, in the uh, vein of attempt of luring in another listener, at this point, I actually, I should give a shout out because I don't know if you saw the picture of um, our joint friend Miriam's dog, Blue, mm-hmm. um, with her placard of science bitch. So Blue is a dog <laughs> uh, with a placard of science bitch on the side, which uh, made some uh, some Facebook posts in the US. So, yeah. But if we mention Blue, then we're guaranteed to get another listener out of Miriam because <laughs> she'll have to listen because she's so addicted to Blue. So <laughs> hello to Miriam and hello to Blue at this point. Yeah. Well, I just, uh, I wanted to bring that up because I thought it was an interesting, you know, um, like I said, interesting debate. Uh, it's something that we could probably get into in future episodes too. maybe find some other people that want to discuss this idea of science communication and how do you get, how do you reach some of these audiences and what the best way forward in that is. But I did attend the march, so I have to, I feel I want to give a shout out to it because I thought it was a good experience. I thought the speakers that they had at the Science March Frankfurt um, were were really well, even though I understood about half of it. My German is still quite not there, but you know, it was. uh, So hold on, you you went to a march in Germany and you couldn't understand the speakers. So for all you know, it wasn't a science march at all. You were being signed up for (laughs) Hitler's youth. Uh, you were at some sort of Nazi rally and you just didn't know it, as Brad. Far as this, that, yeah. this is a disaster. You could potentially you're the catalyst for World War Three. I, I did not hear any mention of eugenics or V two rockets <laughs> or anything of the sort. Um, <laughs> They've moved on now. They got the V three. Yeah, oh, oh, right. Yeah, they dry. Yeah, I hadn't thought yeah. of that. No, I did have a translator with me. Giving me the gist okay, of it, good. and my German's good enough to know the difference between a, a far right <laughs> march and a <laughs> pretty lefty science march. Okay, well that's good. Well, you know, you probably would do well in politics. I think there are some politicians that couldn't tell the difference between either of those. But <laughs> did you? And I'm gonna I'm gonna set you up for your next our next uh, item here. Did you feel when you're on that march that you were maybe being watched? You know, maybe filmed and, you know, maybe you're going to get spotted in that crowd. Possibly. And, and you know what? To be honest, I did think of that when I was in the march. I was like, I wonder, you know, what sort of... Because, you know, there was a police pre- presence uh, there. Um, and I know Frankfurt and Germany in itself doesn't have the same sort of video, video surveillance like um, a city like London, let's say, which I think has, like, no. the most cameras in the world. Um but uh, I did think about it, well, and I did. You know, we're a good, we're a good-looking nation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Take pictures of each other. Uh, well, we'll leave it at that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and even in tweeting and stuff, you know, you think about surveillance and government surveillance and this, and and so I'll I'll put this to you, Brad, because like you said, this is our next topic. If you were to guess a country that in the next couple of years will be implementing a giant facial recognition uh, database with the goal of uh, eliminating um, passport control and making passport control safer and easier um, at their borders and at their airports, who would you think it would be? Who do you think is creating this giant Big Brother facial recognition database? 
Okay, that's a good question. Now, now I'm nervous here that I'm going to be so good and guess it straight away, but I'm also so nervous I'll be miles away. So I think based on the whole border control thing, that's obviously highly prevalent in the news at the moment, I think my first guess would be the US. Mm-hmm. That's uh, That would be the natural guess. I'll give you one more because okay. that is not it. Okay. Okay, and then I guess, uh, well, literally, I guess, uh, my second attempt would probably be something... Probably North Korea, one of the bad Korea companies. You know, very big brotherish, keeping tabs on its subjects. Right, right, that right. Sort of thing. Okay, interesting guesses. The U.S. is an obvious one. Uh, North Korea, I, I didn't think of that, but makes sense as well. Uh, both wrong. It is, in okay. fact, um, our Commonwealth brethren, the Australians. Oh, really? Yeah. So the Australians have hatched this plan... So they have this database of pictures, um, and at first, I think it started in 2016. Well, hold on, well, we've all got a database of pictures, surely, but that's not the sort of thing we should be discussing <laughs> on this podcast, is it? Uh, well, that's that's the other podcast. That's the other podcast ah, we do. I, okay. and, and gotcha. We'll, we'll, we'll shift to that podcast once we're done recording okay. this one. Um, gotcha. So, no, this is a... This is a pictures um for for like passport like passport pictures um and they it originally started just with um foreign citizens foreign born citizens that were foreign born individuals that were seeking australian citizenship so part of the documents that you had to provide was a picture and it would go into this database and that was part of screening when you arrived and stuff and so they're expanding it now um to include australian citizens uh, when you passport photos and stuff like that because they're creating this giant database and their goal is by 2019, 2020 to have like 90% of all of their screening of passengers um, from international flights coming into Australia to be done by biometrics. So biometrics being um, either facial recognition, um, your iris, your, your eyeballs, the iris in your eyeballs, or fingerprints and so they want to totally you know not have manned passport control anymore just have people coming in like you would on a domestic flight and so they're creating these two databases and there's you know a bunch of obvious things that come up privacy and stuff like that Um, so they have this the idea is to create two databases that are what is it facial verification system and a facial identity identification system so the verification system will be you know to basically check your fo- your face against a pre-existing photo and that'll be used with the passport um, infrastructure that they're setting up but it'll also be okay. used for things like um, helping to prevent identity theft you know so when you make a purchase or something like this or you apply for something you they can check your face against what they have in the database and then the facial identification system will be to identify unknown individuals by screening them against the database and and that that part is only going to be allowed to be used by you know the police and security agencies and in special scenarios you know fraud investigations and stuff like this so that's kind of what they're creating and those are sort of the two goals uh, of it and the passport thing falls into one of those goals so this obviously the privacy issue is 
front and center. That's what most people yeah. are talking about. So they've called for um, an actual new position in the government, a biometrics commissioner, to oversee um, basically the creation of all the legislation that's going to have to go into this. Um, okay. And then, you know, watchdogs to prevent what they call scope creep. So if you've ever heard the military term mission creep, it basically just means when you start out with one goal and so you create, you know, plans or systems to reach that goal. And then with your plans and systems and infrastructure that you've created, you're like, oh, well, we could just go a little bit further with this, you know, and then you start adding on, adding on. And before you know it, you've created this giant apparatus that is then out of control so they're you know kind of worried about that um but i don't know it's to me it's a it's a interesting plan and i'm not totally scared by it like i know it sounds like one of those big brother things you know that yeah they're gonna have our face and and you know all all that and they're gonna be able to you know whatever monitor us from anywhere but in terms of just having it as like another we all have photo ID so you're basically just getting rid of the paper and I mean I could be naive and security experts might be like you're naive and this is you know a total invasion of your privacy but to me it doesn't really scare me yeah well I guess you know like my new my passport's just renewed here so uh, and it's my old passport was biometric but they seem to have updated it again so that you know the picture now has to be a certain quality one of it because they scan the inks that most airports um, within Europe now, when you when you land, you just go to a, an automatic booth and it scans your face. And I think once upon a time, it used to then just send the image to somebody that was sat comparing a picture to the, the passport that you scanned in. Whereas I think they have started to automate that a little bit more now. So I guess that to a degree is already there, but I guess they don't naturally have it on a wide scale or store those images. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely going to open up that privacy debate, isn't it? That for sure. But as you said, it, it's basically just moving away from the paper version um, and having it electronically, which you know we do in so many other walks of life. And the, you know the amount of data we store mm-hmm. on our phones, on our laptops. Now, it's just you know it's an extension of that, really, isn't it? But yeah. Yeah, I have no doubt there'll be probably another march somewhere protesting against it. Yeah, Flash. a bunch of people in masks, maybe. Yeah, hey. Um, well, yeah, I, I mean, the, the the cool thing that I thought about right away, though, too, is that, you know, you could easily see links to one of the things we've talked about in previous episodes, which is the blockchain, the... the, um, the software or the algorithm behind uh, Bitcoin and and you know and and that because that's supposed to be the really the the most secure way to uh, have your data in a digital form and use your you know your data or you have your your digital wallet basically with all of your information you know so if you can link the two so it's like your you have your blockchain which is already your blockchain your digital wallet which is already really, really secure. And then your face is just sort of the, the picture on top of that that can get scanned. So you can just walk through and, and be scanned and they know that you're there and it's, it's not a problem. Your data is still secure. Like you still have ways to secure your, your actual data. So to me, there's that level of security that, that is good. Like I, I think it's a good idea. It's, I like it. You know, it's only the guy with my face can, 
can use my stuff or can be registered as me and then they still need to go through the the extra level of you know my blockchain secured digital wallet to get at any of my my actual data right so you know then you're only we're talking about you know face-off scenarios the john travolta john travolta <laughs> nick cage movie you know where it's the only way that someone can really get 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 past but I guess the, the concern is when people think about, well, the government has my picture, so if I want to do something in private, they will know that I've been walking on the street and stuff. But that then comes to, well, do you have cameras everywhere or not? You know, they still have to be able to see you in the street. So to me, the debate yeah. is there and not in using face recognition as a means of entering a country or something. But Well, it's... You, when you started talking about the story, you jogged my memory to something I saw. I think it was earlier, or later last week, I saw on the news about um, some of the new credit cards and credit debit cards that are coming through. So obviously, you know, I think almost most of the world now is upgraded to the chip and pin system or, you know, having microchips built into the card. But the newer generation also have a, a picture on the on the credit card, which I know some of the old like platinum or black cards already had, mm-hmm. um, so not just a signature picture. But uh, the article I saw very quickly basically said, you know, that, that information will be stored on the chip. So the, the credit card readers of the future, when you plug that into the chip reader, you know, will show up a picture on the, the credit card machine of the person that should be using that card um, as well. And then, that, you know, verify that. So you just wonder, is that the next evolution that suddenly it won't just be for passport control, it'll be... Where you plug your credit card in, your picture comes up on the machine, and then it scans your face to make sure that you are who you say you mm-hmm. are, and um, and then they also talk about it storing thumbprints and things. So you know, a bit like Apple Pay or Android Pay, whatever you pay with a thumbprint, potentially your credit card will have your thumbprint on there and have that already built into the credit card. So yeah, I'm, I mean, it makes sense to me, and um, so I'm kind of on board with it. No, maybe there's like you said some people screaming at the at the thing right now being like oh yeah and you want to get the chip when the government puts the chip in your neck to scan you wherever you go and monitor you i'm like well yeah if i can pay super quick and don't have to wait in immigration lines yeah <laughs> maybe i do want to get chipped yeah but um there's one other aspect um to this which is uh, you know, it's, it's a bit of a sidetrack, but not really, because it has to do with the the you know the building the algorithms behind facial recognition software. And when I was reading this story, they didn't really go into those details because I think even you know the the people working on this are still trying to perfect that technology and and, and get it to where it needs to be. Um, but there was a really interesting piece a while back on Motherboard um, by a friend of mine named Rose Eveleth. So, and it's called The Inherent Bias of Facial Recognition. And so I suggest people take a look at it. Um, again, it's on Motherboard called The Inherent Bias of Facial Recognition by a really great um, writer, uh, gal I know, uh, Rose Eveleth. And she talks in this piece about how the lack of diversity in certain labs and stuff, and I'm talking, you know, um, ethnic diversity, gender diversity, that kind of stuff, in some of these labs, the engineering and tech labs, um, it's been brought up in a number of uh, 
discussions um, and why it's not good. Um, there's a bunch of reasons as to why it's not good, but this is a, an interesting one that people don't think of, and it's because when they're building and testing these facial recognition software and algorithms, if you're only using one type of face, you know, white guys from America, it's going to be perfected to work on white guys from America and the technology won't necessarily work well for other genders and other races and, and all this kind of stuff. So there was an interesting piece um, that kind of ties into this that I thought I'd give a shout out to um, because it's just it's something I never I never thought of. Um, uh, and when I started reading this thing about the Australian government moving toward it, it I instantly hearkened back to it and was like, wow, what did they're really going to have to work on this to get it to, you know, be good for all types of people, all types of faces, all types of, you know, all the all the different people we have out there in the world. Well, and I, I guess a very simple version of that is I know there were um, complaints when Siri and some of the, you know, what they call, is it Google Home or the Amazon Alexa or whatever, when they first came out, because they had been developed with a limited number of voices. So I know there were certain uh, accents from around the world. I know in Ireland, for instance, Siri just could not recognise the Irish accent, just couldn't understand them. And mm-hmm. um, I remember seeing a few new articles on that. So, you know, you know, on a, I think that is a very good, it sounds like a good article because, you know, it already exists on a smaller scale. And if you're scaling that up into, you know, potential technology that's going to decide whether you get into a country or not, then... You don't really want many kinks in that system, but yeah, yeah, and it's just something that I had never, you know, I never would have thought about, and uh, I'm glad that she, you know, brought it to my attention and brought it to you know all of our attention. It's a it's yeah. a really good point. So, so we'll see uh, we'll see where the technology takes us on that. Maybe maybe in the next couple of years, um, you know, when we take our our first ever. To Brad for you podcast road trip tour to the land down under. We won't even need to bring yeah. our passports. Well, I'm going to pack mine just in case, <laughs> um, just because I've had a few you know near misses with immigration officials in the past, uh, <laughs> and I don't really want them getting acquainted with me rectally again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, who knows? That's what it says. But I'm going to jump on the uh, the technology aspect. So speaking of technology. Um, some of the listeners um, that, that know me particularly will know that my daughter was diagnosed with diabetes a couple of weeks back, uh, type 1 diabetes. So obviously I've been you know doing a lot of research around that and um, I came across uh, a brilliant head, headline, which you know we've talked about headlines before, grabbed me straight away. Uh, the smartphone app that cures diabetes. So it hooked me in straight away. I thought, brilliant, I can just download this from the app store. You know, we're not going to have to be doing, you know, four or five time daily injections. Wait, well, what's everybody worried about? The smartphones have cured it. Exactly. So, you know, I, I, I went off and had a bit of a read. So basically, as a, a team of uh, scientists, this uh, study came out of uh, China. Uh, and it's the study of uh, optogenetics. Okay. So basically, what they've done is they've got a... Um, group of cells that they've genetically engineered and then implanted in this case into a mouse that respond to uh, light a certain wave of red light in fact and then into that mouse they also implant uh, wireless leds Mm -hmm. which are then controlled by by a phone a smartphone Um, 
so what they did in these uh, mice is they uh, recreated diabetes in these mice. So they took out the uh, the beta cells in the pancreas, and then they implanted these genetic um, genetically engineered cells that would secrete insulin, um, and put them by the LED. They they had to measure the blood glucose just by doing you know a quick blood spot to measure the insulin, but then based on the measurement of blood glucose, they could then using their phone activate the LEDs, which in turn then activated the cells to generate insulin, and then with that bring the blood sugar back down. Um, so the next stage along they were saying is to to integrate the blood measurement of the the glucose along with the response mm-hmm, with the, mm-hmm. the insulin um and then potentially you know they can roll out from there so i started digging into this but like this isn't a new field of um research it's been going for several years um they've looked at it for diseases like parkinson's um and other sort of degenerative diseases potentially mm-hmm. um and the the vision that um, vision actually loss of sight was one of them um, recreating some of the the cells in the back of the eye, um, but the the scientist I, I saw an interview with was basically saying that his vision of it is that you would wear a, a wristband almost a really cool looking wristband um, that aligned with the LEDs and then basically they would implant whatever cells they needed to so in the case of diabetes beta cells basically in your wrist rather than in your pancreas. Ah. Um, and then you know the the wristband would literally just glow when it needed to release insulin, um, or you know, or leave a doper in in terms of uh, Parkinson's stuff. But yeah, in, an interesting con- you know when I first first read it, it's like well you know what's the smartphone going to do? And it, obviously it doesn't have to be a smartphone, but as most people are carrying their smartphones with them all the time, and they're you know effectively powerful little computers in your pocket. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, an interesting use of technology, I thought. For uh, yeah, it's that's really cool, actually. Um, because well, the first time that I had ever heard of optogenetics was is was in, in the neuroscience field. Um, and yeah, basically just using light to activate cells. So you can right. they they do it in the brain if they want to activate a certain area of the brain to do a test or or whatever you know a behavior test or anything like that you can put these cells right. in you shine a light on them and they activate uh, so yeah you take that concept find a cell that's deficient you know make it so that it you can get a new batch of them that react to light and so you can basically turn them on and off whenever you want uh, and you like a light yeah yeah exactly exactly. And then, you know, you can you basically have a pancreas on the go or a pancreas uh, in your wristband that re- releases the insulin. I mean, it's the exact same idea, more or less, of the insulin pumps that people use. My sister has been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes as well, and so she has the insulin pump where you do the, the classic finger prick uh, to get the blood. Um, you put that in the, the glucose monitor, and that gives you the reading and then the reading from that thing is you know much like it would be on in the smartphone in this in your example it sends that measurement of the blood level to a pump that she wears um and that releases the insulin straight into her bloodstream so there's you know no you're you're basically taking this mechanical pump that's releasing insulin um via a small little needle into your system and having your cells hooked up to Bluetooth. So you have your 
beta cells that are now hooked up to Bluetooth and you flick the light on and they start pumping out insulin. That's amazing. I mean, we're just... And then once you get down, the, the next step, I guess, is the is the monitoring technology, kind of like you said. Um, you could have, you know, with nanotechnology, I've seen things, again, doing diabetes research with a family member with diabetes. Um, some of the nanotechnology stuff where they can have uh, basically a, a, a small uh, detector monitor that sits in your in your body underneath your skin that that measures your your glucose once every whatever it is five minutes and wire and, you know wirelessly transmits that that transmits that reading to any device you know now you just put those devices internally or like you say on a little wristband or something and you know it's not actually I guess you wouldn't say it's like a cure it, it it's a cure for the symptoms right like it passes yeah. up all the symptoms yeah. but I mean it's essentially a cure and it's wearable and it's small you know that's i know that's a big thing um that my sister struggled with at the beginning of getting this pump is that it's you know it's not a small device and you kind of have to have it there and so if you're wearing tight-fitting clothing or whatever you know it, it, it can be a bit you know you can be a bit self-conscious about it so yeah it's and it's an and it's a, a step towards bionic humans so but which you know, as you've already said, you'll be the first to have your chip implanted. So you you know you effectively are going to be the first bionic man. Blast. Chip implanted. I want light shining into you know my adrenal gland so I can you know go Bane style and get super pumped up when I need to and all of it, man. Put put you know I'm in robot legs. You, you just want yeah genetically engineered cells everywhere. So you just press a button, you're suddenly you're like a super athlete, and then. Press another button and you're really dexterous. You can play the bassing better yet. So. That's hey man, I'm on board. You know, I'm I've given myself up to technology. I'm I'm well, a willing you know participant. Guinea yeah. pig. Yeah. Well, well, no, as we said, you know, carrying that. You know, most people nowadays have that smartphone, don't they? Which is, you know, what what is it? Something like five hundred times more powerful than the first home computer or yeah. something. It's just something ridiculous like that. Which effectively, you know, I know there was a. Um, I won't say it was Google. I'm not sure it was Google that did a um, competition a couple of years back, basically to. And I think you may have talked about this on uh, your first podcast set of podcasts, the tricorder competition, basically to try and recreate the Star ah, Trek yeah, tricorder. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's you know things like you know obviously this app coming out, not, not the app coming out, but you know potentially the app that could be used for diabetes. Um, I know there's you know the use of smartphones for doing you know fecal egg counts in the world of parasitology that you and I live and work mm-hmm. in. Um, the app that they can use in you know undeveloped countries um, to do eye exams and things. It can spot you know eye diseases early earlier on. Yeah, the tricorder is kind of here, isn't it? It's it's just then developing the the apps or the software to to make it work. Mm-hmm. But yeah, amazing that something that you know. Sir Alexander Graham Bell invented many, many years ago, you know, as a communication device is now out there potentially saving lives. Incredible. You know, it's the old saying, yes, there is an app for that. I guess that's not really an old saying, but it just feels like such an old... (laughs) (laughs) You're old before your time, Flash. (laughs) I remember when all this was filled. I I remember a flip phone, gosh darn it. Well, when phones have to be connected by wire, that's how old school I am. 
Yeah, well, I'll do you one better. Well, I know you remember this too, the old rotary phones. No, I can't remember those. Right. How old are you? What? No, you've definitely, you didn't have a rotary phone? <laughs> no, get out of here. <laughs> I was about to, you, you got me, so I can't even use the, uh, I was born, but not yesterday. <laughs> Sorry, that's uh, taking the wind out of yourselves a little bit yeah, there. Just a bit, but you tend to do that, so. But, um... Let's pump them back up and move on. Um, do you want to? You have anything to add to the um, amazing smartphone? No, I, th- I think that's it. Obviously, it's something I'll be, you know, an area I'll be watching intently now in that that sort of field with diabetes. So, uh, yeah, maybe that maybe it will become a regular feature or just pop up occasionally when something new comes out. What I will just say, and I have made the offer um, via some other people that work in labs that are doing diabetes research. Um, I will buy a pint of beer uh, to anyone that cures type 1 diabetes in my daughter's lifetime. So there's a pint of beer up to grabs. Um, I know some scientists are more focused on the Nobel Prize, that sort of thing. But, you know, I'm offering, you know, a pint of, you know, probably my favorite beer, a pint of Buckham to the first person that wants to cure type 1 diabetes in my lifetime. So I'm just putting that out there. If I know a thing or two about scientists, I know that most of them do enjoy a beer. And you know what? I'm willing to go out and and go out on a limb and and make a a prediction that I think we will see a cure for diabetes in our lifetime. I'm, I'm confident in that, in the way that stem cell research goes or or even will will say to cure like the one that you just um you know explained to us i think we will see technology like that in our lifetime i'm very optimistic on it very bullish on it well i hope you're right i keep my fingers fingers crossed mm-hmm. well with, without without further ado i know i know i know you and i enjoy it and i think our listeners really enjoy it when we delve into the world of physics Oh, you mean uh, you really enjoy it when we stumble through trying to explain and comprehend complex math and quantum physics? Yeah, it's it's yeah, a blast. Yeah, it, it is, and I, and I'm not sure whether the listeners like it because they enjoy the physics and the education behind it, or whether they enjoy it just for listening for the fact of you and I fumbling around in the dark matter <laughs> that is that is the word. That was a physics joke, sir, for the people out there. Um, oh, I got you. That's just. Us just fumbling around like a bunch of idiots like we are when it comes to physics. But I, I, I enjoy both the fumbling around, if you pardon the expression, and the physics. And, you know, I'm going to go there. I'm going to be bold. Yeah, I'm going to go for it. it. I'm going to go into the Take unknown. us into the great beyond. So uh, for those of you that, you know, may have had a problem with uh, your weight in the past, and, you, you know, you've tried diets, you've tried exercise, um, the, physics, the physics world may have a cure. Negative mass. It's been discovered, people. Um, it's my mind blowing yeah. right now. Yeah, there you go. So basically, I don't know if uh, it's a global ad, but negative mass it does exactly what it says on the tin. It's mass, but it's negative. So, um, so it doesn't of, weigh anything. Uh, correct. Okay. Yeah. And it and it doesn't react. So a bunch of um, scientists in Washington, Washington State University, in between going for a beer, as we know they all like to do, um, they've created and observed this in the lab for the very first time. So um, basically uh, what they've seen is, uh, the way they describe it is if you take a, and they've, they've demonstrated it in a fluid. Um, so if you push that fluid, rather than the fluid accelerating away from you, as you would expect when you exert a force on something, mm-hmm. um, it actually accelerates back at you. What? So it acts the opposite way, yeah. Um, 
so the the way they they described it was it was it was like the fluid hits an invisible wall. Um, so it's been hypothesized uh, that it could exist, and it the way to think the way they seem to think of it is think of um, a negative charge on a particle. You know, you can have a particle out there, and you can have a negatively charged particle out there, and they combine to form a, a neutral uh, particle. Mm-hmm. Very very similar. So. So this being that the force that you apply to it uh, is like the positive charge, and the force that it, the way that it reacts is the negative charge, and so it neutralizes. So it, like you said, it doesn't move away from you when you hit it. It comes back at you in an equal yeah. way. Uh, yeah. So the way the way they created it, and I know this is something that everyone in science loves. They use lasers. 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 Um, pew pew. pew. Yeah, exactly. There's the international sound for mm-hmm. lasers, ladies and gents. Um, so the recipe for this, if you want to try it at home, is basically you get some uh, rubidium atoms. You know, you just pop down to your local chemist or pharmacy mm-hmm. and just pick some mm-hmm. of those up. Uh, you then need to chill them to almost absolute zero. Okay. So uh, really fucking cr- cold. Yeah, really, really cold. Uh, and then what you get from that is you create what is called a Bose-Einstein condensate. Um, and basically it's um, a type of superfluid. Um, that basically a superfluid moves in unison uh, with no loss of energy. So it, it moves across. And it basically the, the fluid um, creates a quantum mechanic wave. Um, very very slow moving wave, but a, a, a basically a, a wave like superfluid, and then basically they use the lasers. This is where the lasers come in, basically to blast the atoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what they do is they don't actually blast the atoms. They they hit one of the atoms and put a, a spin on the atom. And basically, the way that the atoms spin then has has a negative effect, and that's where they've observed it. And that's where they say it's effectively it looks like that superfluid is hitting an invisible wall because it then bounces back against itself um so i started reading all this and go well that is really cool it's got lasers it's got quantum mechanics who 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 doesn't love quantum mechanics Mm -hmm. um but i'm like well that's brilliant well what what does that do for us that's going to help but what they've said is it it will help them understand what's going on in black holes in dark matter with neutron stars so it, it will actually broaden our understanding of how the universe works and how potentially it was created as well wow <laughs> yeah yeah that, i mean that's I like basically what I, when i when i read it yeah what what is there not to love about this story there's there's negative mass it's like antimatter and matter in star trek it's lasers it's super cool atoms super fluids super fluids quantum mechanics this is mind blow. This is this is me floundering around in a superfluid, exerting negative mass. That is that is what I'm doing here. Otherwise known as drowning in the world of physics. But you know, I'm trying. Wait a minute. No, I'm trying. I, 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 I think I followed your your explanation. I thought this was pretty good. The idea of that you know, so you get this this fluid, you know, it's basically frictionless. It's moving and it's super cooled and it can move and it moves like a wave. And then you blast it with the laser and it sets the atoms spinning in the opposite direction or in a negative direction. Like to me, that, that visual worked. It's like, you know, by, by spinning the atom the other way or in this negative way, it, it counteracts the, 
you know, motion or whatever. If there's any physicists listening, of course, they're banging their heads against the wall. But you idiots. But um, well, I did. It, they're banging their head against the wall, and maybe the wall is pushing back against. That's them, right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, it did make me think of black holes, though. Like when you were talking about negative mass, I was like, "Isn't that what See? a black hole is? Like the the absence of mass." So maybe you and I are turning into physicists. Maybe we're evolving into physicists. Mm. Flash, we're going to shed our skins and just turn into physicists. Wow! Wow! It's no thanks. Um, I've seen, I've seen, I've, I've seen what their, uh, what their party scene is like. And let me tell you, when I say that I know scientists that like to enjoy a beer or two, that's totally in the biological and chemistry worlds. I don't know about the physicists. <laughs> I haven't been there and I'm sticking to the stereotype of it's a bunch of poindexters talking about negative mass and all this other stuff that we can't understand. Well, I, I just had the stereotype of the Big Bang Theory in my head. Yeah, so, bunch of Poindexters. Well, but then if we all end up with, you know, girlfriends as hot as Leonard's in Big Bang Theory, then, you know, is that a bad thing? Yeah, that's television, and I might add poor television, so uh, I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm not, uh, not, I'm not winning any points with the physics community tonight. Well... Let's see if you can win some back because I know you, I know you've got a physics story which sort of builds on the quantum arena. So uh, why don't you try and regain the trust and the love of the physicists uh, out there that are listening? I think we'll end up just drawing more ire, but um, <laughs> we'll see. Well, this is a topic that we've touched on before. Everybody's favorite physics metaphor, analogy, what what have you, uh, Schrodinger's cat. Yes. So um, the the enticing um, tidbit in this story is that physicists, as we've all just learned, are lovely people that love to have a good time, um, have found a way to breed the classic Schrodinger cat. And in doing so, they're hoping to find this boundary between quantum and classic physics. So, for the background, um, you know, the, the classic physics governs the movement of larger objects like humans and planets and all this stuff. It's the laws of gravity and everything like that. And then what they found, uh, though, is that as you get to smaller particles like atoms and, and electrons and stuff like that, those all those laws um, of classic physics that we use to describe planets in motion and stuff don't work like they just it just doesn't work on the quantum level on the atomic level uh, and so you need a whole new set of equations and math and everything to figure out um, the relationships between those small particles uh, and that's what's known as quantum quantum uh, physics so there's this disconnect why do the, the, the larger things behave in one way uh, that's definable by one set of equations, whereas once you get to this smaller level, um, it behaves in a totally different way? Um, and where's that, where's that boundary? How big do you have to be to use classic physics? Or, or how small do you have to be uh, to switch over to the quantum physics? So that's what they're hoping this, this whole experiment I'm about to lay out um, Will so are you so when you say between big and small, please please tell me this is going 
Schrodinger's cat to Schrodinger's kitten. <laughs> no, and I didn't have oh. I didn't have that uh, pun locked and loaded or joke locked and loaded. So, uh, well, that's what I'm here yeah, for. Good one, good one. And uh, no, it's it's not that at all. Um, but but Damn. Schrodinger's cat for those again that maybe didn't hear your eloquent ex- explanation of it in episodes past. Um, I'll just run through it again. Is basic. Well, you're not you're not going to make the listeners go back and find it amongst the episodes. Well, the they can go back and find your explanation and compare it to my explanation and let us know who <laughs> did it better. It's always a competition with you, you're, Flash. Always you're a competition. Damn straight. Um, so, the idea of Schrodinger's cat comes about because quantum particles can exist in two states at once, and so this is a really hard concept to sort of visualize. Um, until Schrodinger, a famous physicist, came along and, and explained it thusly. Uh, he said, if you have a box that's explosion-proof and you put both a cat and a bomb inside of it and seal it, you won't know whether that cat is alive or dead until you open the box and see whether the bomb has exploded and killed the cat or whether the bomb remains unexploded and the cat is still alive. So that cat effectively exists in two states, alive and dead, um, one of the two, both of them simultaneously, until we open the box and, and observe what's going on. So this is, this, that's basically what happens with quantum particles, is they can exist in two different states, so whether it's a, a polarity, I think they first showed it with microwave photons, so, you know, small photons in a microwave. Um, they can be polarized, so have a pole on one end or the other. Um, and they can be polarized vertically or horizontally. And one or the other, and you, it exists simultaneously until you actually look at it, and then it takes the shape or it takes the, the form of one or the other. So this is kind of the basic idea, is this, 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 this idea that things can exist in these two states at once, and that's called superposition. Um, So they've since they did it with these microwave photons, they've basically been ramping this up and trying to observe it in larger and larger uh, particles. And so this, uh, what was it, 2016? You know, everyone shits on 2016, but in 2016, that was the first time that they actually showed this phenomenon with a light particle, and they were able to film it. So that was a big breakthrough um, for physics. So 2016 wasn't all that bad. Um, <laughs> and now they've they've increased it from light particles to a light wave, I believe. So this is where it's going to get a little tricky to to kind of understand. But basically, you can get well. It was going, it was going well up to now. Let me just put that caveat in. It was going well. I thought I thought you may have done me on your explanation <laughs> of Schrodinger's cat. So you know, up until this point. You've been climbing towards the peak flash, so don't let us yeah, down. Now you've Keep. now you've put all the pressure on it. So if people just stop listening right now, my explanation then, will then exist in yeah. Schrodinger's cat. It's like it's both good and bad, but you won't know till you listen. So um, I like I like what you've done. So there. here we go. So with the light wave, basically they can create um, what's called coherent light waves or something. Basically, it's two light waves that are entangled, so they exist you know, with an electromagnetic, electromagnetic field that moves in both directions simultaneously. So I guess when you have a light wave, 
it, its electromagnetic field will move in one direction. So they've got this situation now where the ick moves in both directions. Um, and so they've created the Schrodinger's cat scenario, the superposition. Um, and then I'm assuming using a, a laser because they run it through what's called laser. Uh, maybe it's not a laser. Maybe I jumped ahead. Anyway, they, they oh. call what's uh, they use what's called. The You're just trying to tease the listeners now, aren't you? By just throwing laser into any story. Like, oh, yeah, it's got lasers. It's got la oh, oh, you're, you're sounding so cool with lasers. So I wanted to hop on that. Um, <laughs> So they run it, what's called a beam splitter. So maybe it's just a prism or something that splits the light wave. I don't know. Um, so they, right. they, they split the beam. They split the light wave, this, this, this superposition light wave that they have. And there's a detector uh, in one channel of the beam splitter. So it splits into two. They have a detector in, in one side of the channel. And when it registers um, an amplitude, a result, um, a wave amplitude, what happens is simultaneously in the other side of the beam splitter, they get a, a reading that's measurably larger. So they, so you have the, again, the superposition scenario, um, it's split into two. When you measure one, you get your, your reading, but simultaneously on the other side, you get the same reading, but larger. So in doing this, what they do is they've actually ramped up Schrodinger's cat. So you can increase the amplitude of the measure measure of Schrodinger's cat phenomenon, if that makes sense. Are you with me? No. <laughs> okay. So we have basically. I'm not sure how else. To, I'm not sure how else to get this through to you, Brad. I can't believe that you don't understand this simple concept of creating a Schrodinger's cat. When you split the when you split the beam, um right. that's that's this is and you and you measure one side of the beam split, yeah. the Schrodinger's cat is instantly born on the other side. And that is, you know, the, these two particles that exist um in both states at once. And so they're quantumly entangled, if you remember that term. So when yeah. you affect one side of it, it, one. it you know the the effect is opposite on the other, um, you know magically through space, quantum entanglement, spooky entanglement, all has to do with the same um, Schrodinger's cat phenomenon. So when you measure one half of the beam split, you simultaneously get a measure in the other half of the beam split, which is Schrodinger's cat. So you've created Schrodinger's cat. The two things are existing in both states. We're looking, but we're able to look at them both. So both those particles or both those sides of the beam split are what we would call quantumly entangled. But the difference in this scenario is that one of those is actually, they've just, they've increased the amplitude of that measurement. So they made it larger. So that's what you, that's, that's the important thing to, to take away here is even if we don't understand the math, even if we don't understand exactly how they're doing it, is they've created this Schrodinger, Schrodinger's cat scenario that we know exists, that we know that they've made, yeah. but they can increase the reading of it. So before you could just see it for a second, or it was just a tiny little atom that you could measure, you know, now they've got it into a light wave. So, so now it's a bigger thing that they're putting right. into this state. 
and so it's more more quantifiable more quantifiable exactly and okay. the the idea is that you know by doing this method of the splitting of this wave and stuff you can increase it even more right so you can ramp it up bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until you reach that threshold where quantum mechanics no longer works and it moves into classical physics so by creating ever increasing schrodinger's cats the idea is that we'll be able to find this threshold between classic physics and quantum physics and if you do that then there's the idea okay. that you could unify the two theories and just get a whole better understanding of right. the world and the universe around us so okay now i get you you're with me now i'm with you so yeah there you go. Mind equals blown. Uh, and I'm basically, my brain is fried trying to wrap my head around that and understand it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's why it took, took me, you know, A, I'm a bearer of little brain anyway. I'm a bearer of little physics brain. I've had a couple of beers. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I got, yeah, okay, I get that. So it's finding that when does one branch of physics become the other? So. Yeah, interesting. Exactly. And okay. I mean, and that's kind of like what, you know, um, Einstein was always talking about is, you know, Einstein came up with you know, quantum mechanics and quantum theory and stuff and realized that and hypothesized that all these things should happen in the quantum world. And why are they different than classical physics? And this is sort of physics has long been looking for the unifying oh concept so, or theory between the two you know large branches and and if you've, you, you like the story that you talked about it seems like everything every physics story we talk about is like well this will give us the uh, the complete understanding of what dark matter is and why there's a difference in quantum and classic and you basically the theory of everything that will unify all of this and will be you know supreme beings flying through space so my my analogy to simplify the the report that you've just given, and and you 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 can have to correct me if I'm wrong in this. Effectively, that bomb-proof box that you put the cat in at the start of the story with Schrodinger's cat, yeah, is now made of bomb-proof glass. So you can look through at any time and know which state the cat is in. Have I totally lost the plot here, or am I? Because then you know where the line is. You know, okay, well, I'm looking at the timer on the bomb and I know it's got, you know, I know when it's going to go off because I can see the fuse on it or whatever, or I can see it's gone off because there's blood and guts splattered all over the box. Could be. Could, yeah. I've, I'm, I'm underwhelmed at your response there, Flash. I, I thought I'd nailed that <laughs> analogy there. And I thought you were going to go, whoa, yeah, you have just grasped this, my friend, with both hands and more and your response was totally totally underwhelming well that's my friend uh, you uh, my headphones cut out so I didn't hear you <laughs> <laughs> oh let's blame on the headphones shall yeah, we yeah yeah so I've I've rectified the problem so you can either go into it again or we'll listen back to it okay on the so so my my analogy for this is so if we go back to when you said basically you're putting a cat in a bomb proof yeah. box with a bomb that box is now made of bomb-proof glass. So at any point, you can look through and see what state that cat is in. Mm -hmm. So you're crossing that boundary between quantum physics and normal physics. 
that was your, that was your point to be really excited and go you've nailed it and yet again even though you have yeah, to work now in, I heard it and I'm not you've screwed me I'm not sure that that's exactly because because this is what in 2016 they were able to observe the phenomenon of of Schrodinger's cat of the two things existing at once and spooky entanglement and all that so I'm not sure that the you know just looking through the glass and being able to see it is the is is the point the point is that you can we can actually get to a point where we can put the cat in the box and measure it you know we've never been able to actually put the cat in the box we've only been able been able to put you know ants in the box or very small animals now we and have now, okay. license so to the analogy put, is now we've got a tiger yeah, in there exactly exactly now okay. we have license to put larger animals in the box and explode them <laughs> Well, th- this episode is only going to win over more viewers and listeners from the world of uh, Peter and organisations like that once we start advertising that. So thanks for that flash on now. Check into my car every morning. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's another thing I'm not used to here in, in, in Europe. Uh, back in North America, you know, animal research is really well accepted. You know, maybe not blowing up tigers, but, you know, we'll get there. <laughs> Yeah, you, when you when you go back to Canada, you try blowing up tigers and see <laughs> see how well accepted that is. Flash, you let me know. You let me know how that goes for you, but you have to do it fairly quickly before you get killed. Hey, in Canada, we blow up seals every year, so. Well, that's true. Yes, you do. That's true. Yeah. Not in the name of science either. No, in the name of great boots. <laughs> hey, well, if it keeps you warm, my friend. That's right. Well, speaking of boots. That segues in nicely into uh, my next story of uh, bootlaces, or shoelaces actually, but bootlaces is an easier segue in. Um, Flash, why do your shoelaces come undone? Usually, I'm going to say because uh, I was a poor student and never really learned to tie them in the first place. That's why I've been rocking Velcro for a long... No. Um, uh, I was waiting for you to say, I don't have shoelaces, I have Velcro. So, yeah, well done. Well but, done. You've not disappointed me at all, yeah, though, my friend. Uh, I'm going to go with a serious answer, though. And, I mean, we, 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 we just, you know, floundered our way through complex physics. You know, physics can answer so many questions about black holes and the stars and all these big reaching stuff. But I have a feeling that this is physics as well that's going to give us, you know... The real everyday answer that we that we need right now to bring our minds back down to the levels they should naturally be at. Well, let me let me tell you why they come undone. I'm all ears. Invisible, invisible fingers. Oh, so it's magic after all. Yeah, it's gremlins. Yeah, yeah. So um, a bunch of uh, I'm. Well, uh, there's a bunch of scientists. I, I don't know whether they're physicists or not. I guess this would fall into physics, wouldn't it? Um, at the University of California at Berkeley, um, they basically, through the use of just slow motion cameras, um, have worked out what that annoying thing of laces coming undone uh, is caused by and what it's what it's for. So basically, what they've what they've shown is, um, if you're running, for instance, then you exert seven times or up to seven times more pressure on the structure of that shoe, including the laces, than you do when you're just walking or stood at rest. And basically, when you're when you're running in that extreme, so you're putting more force, basically, as you run, you're stretching 
the, the structure of that shoe, including the laces, and then you're relaxing it as you come down. So, you know, as you lift up, you're stretching, you come down, you're relaxing. And basically that stretching and relaxing on the, on the lace basically then starts to, in a two-directional way, start to loosen the bond between that knot. Right. At the same time, you've got the rotation of the ends of the lace that are swinging around in the breeze that effectively, with the vibrations from the running, are basically, due to the, the forces acting on the weight of the, the ends of those laces, slowly just pulling apart. So eventually, the mixture of up and down stretch and the side-to-side swing of the laces effectively simulates fingers pulling that lace apart. It makes sense. And that's... Well, yeah, it does make sense. Part of me also thinks, really, are we investigating this? You know, why? <laughs> um, the why The why is they basically say it um, will help with the understanding of um, knots and structures in, in biology. So microstructures within cells, specifically DNA, things like mm. that, how that's kept together and how that can sometimes be damaged. Yeah, pulled um, apart and damaged, yeah. Yeah. Um, through through forces like this and then they were saying obviously the more weight that you put on the end of the laces potentially the quicker the knot comes undone because of the forces act but the the thing so I sort of read that and say oh, okay that that is quite a I think for most people an easy concept yeah you stretch the knot and that becomes a bit loose and then you've got the vibrations on the end of the laces and that pulls it apart but the analogy it was in the report that I read the analogy uh, that one of the researchers gave was um the untying of a shoelace, it's much like pulling on the end of a bow tie and it comes undone. Well, no shit, Sherlock. It's like pulling on the end of a shoelace and it comes undone. It's like pulling on the end of any knot that will then come undone. What sort of analogy is... When we talk about communication in science, it's shit like that that needs to be crossed out. Yeah, I'm pointing to those Poindexter physicists again too, man. They just don't—they uh, don't get it. They got to overcomplicate everything. You know, cats, yeah. cats and boxes getting exploded, and you know the simple—the simple—it's like untying your shoe. No, no, no. We got to add something else in there. Yeah, it's invisible fingers undoing the shoe. It's the leprechauns undoing the laces. Yeah. That's what it is. But yeah, so that that's that's the physics behind why your shoelace comes undone. Okay. So well, and and you know that that's some physics we can all understand. Yeah, we can all get yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. It's like physics one hundred and one. I like it. it. Makes me feel less dumb, even though. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we both needed saving from the last two stories <laughs> because I think we were floundering quite badly. I think we pulled it back. Yeah, yeah. In fact, we could just just edit out. The uh, Schrodinger's cat in the negative mass piece, and we'll just go straight to the shoelaces, yeah. <laughs> and we'll sound like we'll sound like accomplished physicists. Yeah. There we go. Well, um, I don't know what our running time is out here, Brad, but do we do we want to do one more? Should we? I yeah, I think we can. Yeah, let's let's wrap up. I think we've got time for one more. I think we're just over the hour, but go for it. All right, one more here, um, and, and and by no means a, a small story because we're we're talking about. Uh, Saving the planet, basically. Um, oh, well, that is that is not a topic that can be dealt with in mere seconds. <laughs> but you're gonna have to you're gonna have to you're gonna have to try to use some sort of brevity, flash. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, climate change, which you know we don't actually what? really believe in on this show. But I was gonna say, yeah, yeah but, it doesn't exist. Know, apparently, it's so. a big deal, and the ice caps are melting. So um, there's this, this, this harebrained idea out there that's been proposed um, 
to combat the melting of the uh, ice cap in the Arctic by installing 10 million wind-powered pumps that will spray water over the uh, ice cap and like a like a snow machine that you would see creating artificial snow on a ski hill you know so the idea is to cover it in this artificial snow and then the um the sunlight coming in won't melt the ice directly it'll the snow will reflect off of it and you know keep it from melting so you can cool the ice cap and they've they've done you know they've, they've crunched the numbers um, the proof of concept is there and that, yes, if you have a cover of snow on the glacier, it protects it uh, from melting and all this. So they've crunched the numbers. And if you put these 10 million wind powered pumps up there in the Arctic and you're spraying, I think it's something like 16.5 kilograms of water a second or something all over. Wow. Um, you can actually add one extra meter of sea ice to the ice cap which doesn't seem like a lot but what it doesn't seem like no, a lot but what yeah. the climate scientists tell us is that that's basically like going back 17 years it's putting us back to the scenario of the ice cap 17 years so that's pretty good um, and these 10 million pumps if you use 10 million pumps you cover about 10% of the arctic okay so that was going to be my next question if if the whole logic behind this is you just cover up the ice so that it doesn't melt, and in this case, you don't have snow. I was going to say, surely, ten million pumps is probably covering up a vast amount of space. But if it's only covering up ten million, ten million is only ten percent. So if you wanted to cover the whole Arctic, you would need a hundred million pumps. Well, thanks, thanks for doing the maths there for our listeners. <laughs> Flash, they don't call you Flash for nothing, do they? <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Um, so and so uh, to get the hundred million. To get enough steel, that's that's more steel than the U.S. produces in a year, so it's like it's just it's totally crazy idea. So obviously, right. no one in their right mind was was gonna fund this this project, even though they did the they crunched the numbers. Looks like it would work. However, the Swiss leave it to leave oh, it to the Swiss. Always the leave Swiss. It to the Swiss. They're they're all high on chocolate. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what it is. They're they're running a trial. Um, in one of the glaciers that is uh, in the Alps to see if they can protect just this small section of this glacier uh, for a summer. So they're going to do this this program of okay. spraying the snow everywhere, you know, creating the snow, the, the pumps, um, to cover the small section of a glacier during the hottest months of the summer to see if they can protect that one section. And their goal with doing this pilot project is not to then upscale all the way to the Arctic, but they want to protect uh, the largest glacier that's in the Eastern Alps. And I'm going to you know, destroy the name here, the Mortarasht Glacier, it's called. So it's a, Easy for you to yeah. say. <laughs> not. <laughs> it's, the, it's the largest glacier in the Eastern Alps. Um, okay. And so... They figure, the, the, the calculations there is that with 4,000 snow machines, they could not only stop the Mortarasht glacier from shrinking, which it does annually by 30 to 40 meters um, currently, they could not only stop it shrinking, but they could actually help it to grow with 4,000 of these pumps. 
So that's their goal in running this trial project um, for the uh, for the summer. So for this upcoming summer, this plan to, to save their glacier. So we'll see this summer if, um, if the trial works. And then if the trial works uh, and they want to move to you know, saving this, this giant glacier that they have in the Alps, it's still going to cost a shit ton of money. Like so much money. But you know the Swiss have been sitting on that Nazi gold for a long time waiting for something to spend it on. So, you know. And did they mention that Nazi gold in the Nazi rally you attended? <laughs> they did not, Brad. We went over this. My oh. German is good enough to know when I'm at the wrong rally. And it's only happened to me once. <laughs> well, Hitler said that, and he only invaded Poland once. So, you know, look how well that turned out for everyone. Uh, well, I, I think we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. We'll end it there. And, okay. And say, so we're not going to save the Arctic anytime soon, but the Swiss got this crazy idea that they might be able to save one of their glaciers. And, and you know what? I think the interesting thing is that it's, yeah, think big. You know, climate change and all that stuff, we're going to have to think big. And maybe some of these crazy ideas that seem like there's no way, yeah, maybe maybe we will one day see snow yeah. machines blasting away in the Arctic, covering it up with ice. I mean, wouldn't be ideal, but hey. Or we just create a giant freezer and put the whole of the ice cap in a giant freezer. Yeah. Well, the, the other point, I think, is we want to talk about creating jobs. Building all these, wow. you know, wind-powered pumps. Yeah, but you, there's not going to be the robots will do that. Flash, you know that as well as I do. Yeah, that's true. You're right. You're yeah. right. Yeah, happens occasionally. <laughs> um, before we go into what we've learned today, I, I have to remember another shout out in the um, Horesca tape for more listeners. It was uh, our good friend Brian's birthday uh, last week, I think. So we should give a shout out to Brian. I know. Uh, he's a, a listener of the podcast, uh, so happy birthday to happy him. Happy birthday, Brian. Uh, we are not above doing birthday call-outs for listeners. As you... So, yeah, so tweet at us your, yeah. your birthdays. We'll do birthday call-outs. Maybe we'll be so shameless as to, like, sing a song or something. I don't know. Mm, yeah, let's, let's try and keep the seven listeners we've got flash. <laughs> let's not... You know, put them all so um, do you want me to recap what we've... Uh, Learned Please today do, sir. before we uh, wrap it up. Um, we, we've touched on it a couple of times during the show, but you know, potentially Flash may have unknowingly joined a Nazi rally. <laughs> you know, I think it's it's good that we put out that he, it was unknowing. You know, he didn't know it's a different yeah. language, different culture. And if they took um, a picture of my what face we, and put it in some database, I didn't know. <laughs> and they start calling him Mein Führer. <laughs> it, it, it got very confusing for him at, at one point. Um, what we have definitely learnt, according to Flash today, which I'm indiscriminate about, but, you know, according to Flash, there ain't no party like a physics party, <laughs> um, according to Flash. Uh, what we can say with certainty for both Flash and I is that we know shit about physics and especially quantum physics. We're we like to, we're very interested in it and we like to think we know a little bit about it, but we know shit. We know shit about it's it. It's sadly true. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one thing that is education for our, our listeners, and I'll leave you with this sort if you pull on the end of a bow tie, it will come undone. Yeah, mind blown. Yes, Thanks, physics. You're welcome. <laughs> um, Flash, it's been a pleasure, as always. Yeah, you too, sir. Thank you. Uh, always look forward to our, our little chats here. So, 
Yeah, same here. Um, listeners out there, if you want to get in touch, then uh, you can tweet us at the show at Too Brad for You. It's the same handle for Instagram. If you want to start sending in your pictures, uh, then we're, crea- we're, we're creating a database. Yeah, so we particularly like pictures of yeah, but we particularly like pictures of quantum physics, lasers, um, pictures from the science march. You want to send some of those in. Um, smartphones in use saving the world that would be good as well um, you can tweet me individually uh, I'm at Bradley W Hayes and Flash where can, where can they get hold of you uh, at vvamparadon um, uh, yeah that's Twitter Instagram as well but don't send me your Instagram pictures I don't want them no he just wants those for his private <laughs> use not public use um, so yeah I will say until next time Flash it's been a pleasure I look forward to uh the next episode already already you know this is whetted my appetite for <laughs> science and current affairs so uh, i look forward to it my friend all right man uh yeah thanks a lot thank you listeners and uh, yeah we'll catch you all later catch you soon cheers of the chair moving because it did sound ridiculously like a fart there you go you have that sound as well uh, okay I'm ready when you are